Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to the prose translation of the second psalm. Second psalm. And this evening we'll be reading the entirety of this portion of God's Word. Psalm 2, starting there at the first verse. The Word of our God. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless us indeed under it this evening. In this psalm, we see Christ. We see him, of course, throughout the Psalter. We see him in Psalm 22. But we see him there in a very different way. In the 22nd Psalm, we see there Christ, as his bones, as it were, are looking to him. As he's compassed about with the bulls of Bashan. We see him there as... He is clothed in agony. We see him also in Psalm 110. We see him there, the great warrior king. And at the end of that psalm, you remember there's a picture, a picture of tranquility, a picture of victory. Down to the brook, having defeated all of his enemies. Manifesting that he indeed is victorious in the end. And we see him through other psalms as well. But in the second psalm, preeminently, Christ comes to us clothed with royal regalia. Not with a crown of thorns, but with a diadem that is glistening. One that manifests that this indeed is potentate over all the earth. We see our princely redeemer. That, of course, is straightforward. We can see that so very clearly in the text. But I want us this evening to look at this, to see especially how this kingship of Christ is central to the psalm. I want to do that briefly with you this evening as we begin in two ways. I want to begin by looking at how the text itself drives us to see the centrality of Christ's kingship. And then I want us to see how the themes themselves do the same. 
Now, I, I intend not to be tedious here, but I, it would be helpful if you have the text in front of you and, and you, you try to follow as I, as I lead you through the psalm. Because what you have in this psalm is what we call a chiasm. A chiasm is simply a literary device that runs right throughout ancient literature, both sacred and secular. And the purpose of a chiasm is to underscore a point of emphasis. My friend, this is so very important. The Word of God not only gives us, of course, the verses of Scripture that we have in front of us, but it also tells us what we are to emphasize in every text. And one of the ways that the Lord does that is through these literary devices. So I want us to pay attention to them this evening, just briefly. And the way the chiasm works is you have parallel ideas that are contrasting. I want you to see that in the psalm, first of all. Take, first of all, verse, verse 1. There you have a clear picture of a raging people. But then go down to the last verse, verse 12. There you have a picture of a trusting people. Go back to verse 2 for a moment. There you have kings who are engaged in rebellion. If you look down at verses 11 and 12, you find those self-same kings are urged to cease their rebellion and to submit. And you'll notice that it is to submit both to God and to his anointed one, his Messiah. If you go back to verse 3, you find a third level where kings didn't intend to shatter the rule of God and his anointed. But in verses 8 and 9, we're told that no, it's the divine son who will shatter them if they do not repent. Strikingly, the same word that is employed in verse 2, sorry, in verses 4 and 5 are the same ones employed in verses 8 and 9 to shatter. And then, friend, what you have here in verses 4 to 5, God speaking in wrath. In verses 8 and 9, God speaks again, but this time in promises. Now, as I said to you already, chiasm, is, its purpose is to highlight what is really the central theme in any given text. The center of a chiasm is that point of emphasis. And note what the center of the psalm is. Verses 6 and 7. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Structurally, the psalm drives us to this point of emphasis. But even the content that we've seen, even just briefly this evening, drives us to the same conclusion. Namely, that the kingship of Christ is central. It is the Son who speaks these words. The decree, he says, I I will declare the decree. And I want you to notice that what is central to Christ's speech here, as he's reiterating what the Father has said to him, is what he will do. Meaning that this is referring to the eternal decree, that is to make Christ king in Zion. Note he says, I will set, or I will anoint him. He is repeating to us something that antedates our very psalm. He's speaking of the, of the eternal decree. And I want you to notice, friend, that this is an anointed king. Here we're not thinking about Christ as he is the divine son. Here we're thinking about Christ in the proper sense of the name, as he is the anointed one, as he is redeemer. As the divine son takes upon himself the mediatorial office, So he becomes the king that we see in this text. 
Note he is the king upon the holy hill of Zion. A friend, what you have here in all of this is that this one, Zion's king, who is also the eternal son, he is now central to all of the themes that you have before us. Strikingly, that means he's central. Well, he's a central focus to the rebellious kings, as he's a central focus to those who trust in him for salvation. He's central to the judgment that you and I see in this text, and he's central, of course, to the dominion that is manifest here. Now, friend, I know that now over a year ago, we took up this psalm, and I did seriously consider leaving this by because of that, and moving simply to the third psalm. But what I want us to do this evening is, is of course, not just to revisit what we saw last August, but but to go a bit deeper and to emphasize not just that Christ's kingship is here, but as the ways that I've already shown you, to show you that this kingship is not only present, it's central. The word of God is telling us something quite profound about Christ's dominion and is emphasizing that in a way that that I think we, we ought to plumb deeper into. And so that's our purpose this evening. I want us to see that In this psalm, we are taught that man's rebellion and salvation center in some way upon Christ's kingship. Man's rebellion and salvation center upon Christ's kingship. And just briefly, I want us to look at this under two headings. I want us to see the extent of this dominion, and then I want us to see how the psalm shows us how Christ exercises the same. For that, I want to direct your attention, namely the extent. I want us to see it through verse 8, first of all, where there Christ is reiterating what the Father has said to him from eternity. He says here, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And obviously these are two lines that are standing in parallel, and the purpose of that is to enforce in our minds the universality of this grant. This is a universal deed that Christ receives. The uttermost parts of the earth, he says, are his, and and the heathen, all of those who inhabit, all of these ones are under his scepter. Friend, as I said to you before, what there Christ is speaking of is the eternal decree, what we often refer to as the covenant of redemption. It is that covenant that antedates, predates as it were, what you find in verses 1 and 2. If you look back at how the psalmist describes the rebellion, you'll notice there, you'll notice there these words. They say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Whose cords are they seeking to come out from under? From the Lord and from his anointed, his Messiah. And friend, that means then that the nations at that moment were already under the yoke of Jesus Christ. They were already under his cords. And they were already rebelling against it. That's a crucial point, and I hope in time we'll see why that's so significant. It shows us that all nations are under Christ's dominion. Howsoever pagan they may be. Howsoever rebellious they might be. They are under Christ's dominion. Now, in one sense, friend, you and I recognize that that that's true because, well, of course, we're speaking of the divine son. And, and of course, as he is 
one person of the blessed and adorable Trinity, the one Creator God, then friend, of course, you and I know that as Creator, God is sovereign, has full prerogative over all of His creatures. And so says the psalmist, they rebel against the Lord, that is Jehovah, the Creator God. In Psalm 100, you remember that the psalmist reminds us that it's because we are his creatures, we are to submit to him, he who makes rules. But I want you to notice, friend, that while that certainly is present, namely the prerogatives of the creator, that's not the point of emphasis in the psalm. What we are reminded of in this psalm is that, of course, all nations are under the Lord as he is creator. That is, all individuals and all creation ordinances, whether that be marriage, family, or politics. But friend, all of that is subsumed under the rule of the Messiah. I want you to see this. Again, the Lord is very clear in the psalm. It is against his anointed, the one who is called by the Father, my son. And so we're not just thinking about God's prerogatives over his creatures. We are thinking here of the rights, the crown rights, and royal prerogatives of Jesus Christ. Not as he is the divine son, but as he is mediator. As he takes upon himself that work, that office. Now I want you to notice just very briefly, without getting into great detail here. I want you to notice that these are kings who are rebelling against him. And they are called kings who rebel against him. Now, what does that teach us? I want to say just very briefly, friend, that that teaches us that that even pagan nations can have kings that rebel against Christ. And they can still be called kings. The psalm does. What we're talking about then, when we talk about the mediatorial dominion of Christ, is not that creation ordinances are now grounded in the mediatorialship of Jesus, but rather that they are subsumed to it. And the significance of that is these creation ordinances, they derive their authority and legitimacy from God as creator. That is, their essence is from God creator. But their bene esse, that that is, their well-being, comes as they submit to God the Redeemer, Jesus Christ as Zion's King. And we'll come back to that theme in just a moment. Or perhaps it might be useful for me just to linger there for a second longer. A friend, the meaning of that, take it, for, take it in a political sense, just briefly. A pagan nation can have pagan kings, and those pagan kings can be legitimate even if they do not acquiesce to the scepter of Christ. Just as a pagan father is still a father, because by virtue of creation, he holds that position. But friend, what I want you to notice is, this psalm tells us that for the well-being of all of those things, they must submit. And it becomes even more, it becomes even more important Friend, for us to remember that when nations do become Christian, when they are baptized in the gospel sense, that is, their constitutions now require that their leaders maintain a profession of faith. 
Well then, friend, their kings must be Christian. Their kings must rule according to that constitution because those nations have submitted as they ought to have. And if those kings do not submit, they are divested of legitimacy. But all of that, friend, I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we continue here. The text is urging us to remember that this, is, this kingship conveys obligation for all. And the obligations that belong to these nations as Zion's king reigns is just this, that first of all, they need to submit to him because there is no other way for men to be made truly holy before God. There is no way to obey God creator but through coming to Jesus Christ. But we can go a step further. Part of this obligation is that they will also wait for the law that comes from his mouth, the picture you receive from Isaiah 2. They seek his law, his standards. And, so, and friend, that means then that they render obedience to God the Creator as they approach him through the new covenant. All of that is obligatory upon all men. Now, friend, politically speaking, because this psalm is obviously driving us to think about the duty of nations, what does that look like? Well, friend, to submit to the mediatorial dominion of Christ is ultimately, in its most practical sense, to seek the welfare of the church. I think this is often forgotten, but, friend, it can't be. The church is Christ's bride. And he urges nations to, to, to afford her all that she needs. All that she would have for her comfort and for her faithfulness. And so the prophet Isaiah tells us in the gospel age, in Isaiah 49, kings shall be thy nursing fathers and queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. Note what he says there. This is how the kings ought to be serving the church of Jesus Christ. This, in other words, is how they submit to his scepter. And it's obligatory upon all nations so to do. What this text teaches us is that the extent of the dominion of Christ is such that it encompasses all creation ordinances and for their well-being they must submit. And friend, the idea that's behind this has been so wonderfully articulated by Abraham Kuyper. He says this, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's what this psalm is teaching us. Every square inch, Christ says it is mine. And as God the Redeemer, He proclaims that for their well-being they must submit. But that brings us secondly, as we close not only to the extent, but to the exercise of this dominion. You see this in verse 9 in two ways. He says that thou shalt break or dash them, those who remain rebellious. Again, in there, the 12th verse, we're told that there's an impetus to repent lest he be angry when his wrath is kindled but a little, and ye shall perish from the way. I want you to notice, friend, and this could quickly be forgotten, that the work of judgment that's described there is the work of Zion's king. 
Again, we're not referring here to Christ as he is the divine son, but Christ as he is mediatorial king. And the same thing is in view in verse 12. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Again, it's Zion's king that's in view. And so we see here, friend, that through his dominion, Christ exercises and executes judgment and blessing. And he does so as Zion's king. His kingship is central to his works in both. Now, friends, as we look at this, I'd like to linger for a moment on the idea of judgment, because I think perhaps this is one of those elements that we've lost. You remember, perhaps, in the book of Revelation, the sixth chapter, you have that moment where where the nations tremble under the wrath of God. But can I remind you how they tremble? They cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Friend, I want you to notice what those nations are crying there. They are saying that they are running away. They would have the mountains and the rocks cover them, not simply from the wrath of their Creator, but from the wrath of the Lamb. Truly, friend, reading that, it almost seems paradoxical, doesn't it? The wrath of a lamb. But the point is, friend, in that text, and we we cannot miss that, is that they are seeking to hide themselves from the wrath of God as manifest in the work of the mediator. This judgment of God comes through Christ, who is mediatorial king. You see this all throughout the scriptures. friend. You see, of course, in John 5, that, that all judgment is committed to the Son. And, and friend, what I, I would really highlight for us this evening is that in Psalm 2 and in Revelation 6, the judgment that comes from the Lamb is not simply the final judgment. I want you to notice, friend, that we're talking about a judgment that is on this side, the consummation. A wrath that is this on this side manifest of the grave. What that teaches us, friend, is that when you see empires crumble, when you see kingdoms fall, rulers collapse, when you see the individual rebel of Christ fall in death. What this psalm teaches us, friend, is that it is the scepter of Christ. It is his sword that has come upon them all. I don't think we think like that. But that's precisely what this psalm teaches. Friend, when you and I see even the wicked perish, die the death, our thought ought to be that there you have the sword of Christ wetted. There you have Christ, mediatorial king, subduing all of his enemies, peace by peace. That's what this psalm teaches us. And of course, at the end, this will also be manifest. 
Uh, I know I've highlighted this in recent days, but it's important to keep before us. The Reformed Orthodox remind us that Christ will not judge only according to the divine, but also according to the human nature, to which by grace was given autocratic power, because by his death he acquired for himself the right of lordship over all men, and part of his dominion is this judgment. Friend, he will judge as mediatorial king. That is part of the dominion that is given to him. And that we see here in our text. And so as Zion's king, he executes judgment. But I want us to close by seeing that he also dispenses grace. In order to see this, friend, we need to go back to what you find in the 12th verse. Where there he says, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. It's important for me to remind you, friend, that the Beatitudes of Scripture are not, they are not materialistic. When one is pronounced blessed in the scripture sense, you and I are supposed to understand blessing in the superlative. And especially, friend, you and I are to remember that the blessing that's in view, that comes from God, it transcends materiality. Yes, it it encompasses material things, but it certainly goes far beyond them. These are ones, those who are pronounced blessed, these are ones who are in possession of the greatest, the highest good. And on our psalm, we're told that those are blessed who put their trust in Zion's king. Now, friend, I want to highlight just for a moment that the word trust there is the word elsewhere translated faith, and never is that word applied to one exercising faith in a man, never once. This is why Christ is the only one who's in view in Psalm 2. Uh, Never is David, for instance, supposed to be the object of one's faith. So what you have in this psalm is men entrusting themselves wholly to him. He, that is Christ, becomes the object of their faith. But then we're told that in so doing they are blessed. And friend, the idea is they are blessed through him. And the question is, how is that possible? Friend, it's only possible, and we cannot forget this, because the one in whom they have lodged their faith is the one who holds all the reins of providence and who effectually works good, their good in all things, secures for them all blessings necessary for their faithfulness and their succor in this life, and of course, conducting them into the next. And friend, that means then that Zion's king must hold all of providence in his power so that all things would indeed work together for the good of those who indeed have placed their faith in him. And that's precisely what the scriptures teach in Ephesians 1. God hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. All things, friend, means all of the mechanics of government in all of God's creation. Those all are under his power so that indeed what you have at the end of chapter, sorry, at the end of verse 12 could be affected. And that means then for you and for me that all that you and I enjoy in this life are from his throne as mediatorial king. Friend, if all things work together for our good, 
if all things come to the believer for their growth in grace and to secure them in this life, then all things, down to the breeze that blows, to the food on your table, and all of those things are under Christ's scepter. And we can't forget that. These things come to us by royal decree. Now as we close, friend, the first point that we have to raise is one of examination. We're told here, as you look back in the psalm, that that there will be a day in which it will be made manifest that this son was the begotten son of God. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And the question is, what day are we referring to? And the answer, friend, is straightforward in the scriptures. The day that is referred to here is the day in which Christ was most manifestly declared to be the divine son and Zion's king. He was always Zion's king in terms of right. But one day in scripture, one day we could describe as his coronation day. That is, when it was very made, it was made manifest in a way never before that he was the one of Psalm 2. The apostle describes that day for us, Romans 1, verse 4, as the day of his resurrection. Friend, that day has already come to pass. Our calendars mark it. Weekly, we observe that coronation day. And so the question for us is, Friend, have we submitted to the one who has been declared Zion's king? He's already been named and identified, and he lives now. Have we submitted to his scepter? If we have, then, friend, there are a few items from this psalm that we are to take home with us for our comfort. First of all, as Christ reiterates for us the content of the covenant of redemption, He does so by reminding us that the Father came to him and simply said, Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Oh friend, there is a wealth of comfort here. Here we're told that all that Christ must do is ask and they're his. They're his. Friend, is it not a wonder that he would ask for the heathen to be his own? Is it not a marvelous thing that in the covenant of redemption, our triune God sought sinners who were bent only on rebellion and would remain so by nature had not grace intervened? Here you have the disposition, the saving disposition of our triune God, so very clearly manifest. You also are supposed to remember in this text that he rules for the good of those who trust in him. He holds his scepter for your good. Let whatever nations do what they may. And so, friend, the exhortation from this text is precisely that, that you have in verse 12, kiss the son, submit to him, bow low before him. There's a positive and a negative exhortation from this text. I don't want to go too long here, but I think it's necessary for us to leave this text with these two exhortations before us. Friend, what you and I are reminded of here 
is, of course, the great love that God has for sinners. Pleased to give such a son to be Zion's king, to rule for the good of his people, those who would otherwise have been lost, and for eternity. But what you and I can't get away from in this text manifestly is that this is a son whom one must not offend. The the text of Scripture is so very clear, isn't it? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. I think we've lost that, friend. We've lost that sense that it is a fearful thing to offend the son. A fearful thing to provoke this king. I don't need to remind you, do I? But just a year ago, if you turned on the television, if you listened to the radio, you would have heard reporters, reporters biting their nails, working themselves nearly into an apoplectic fit, afraid of what Vladimir Putin might do to Britain if he becomes too angry. Where is that kind of trembling when nations run headlong in rebellion against the sun? We're afraid of what Vladimir Putin's nuclear submarine might do. But what of offending the sun? Friend, I can go a step further, can't I? If it was announced tomorrow that Vladimir Putin had declared that Britain or the United States had gone a step too far and he was bringing war to these shores. Well, friend, I believe if we called for a prayer meeting, there would not be standing room in this place. But I wonder, friend, would this place be packed if we called for a day of fasting and prayer because we've offended the Divine Son? Zion's king. Would anybody come for such a prayer meeting? Friend, that shows us how far we have removed ourselves from the truths of the psalm. But the second exhortation, aside from being fearful to offend him, the second exhortation, friend, is to commit yourself entirely to his scepter. You may not know, friend, what befalls you tomorrow but you do know the one who rules tomorrow. All of, the, all of the gears, the mechanics of providence are under his control. And so, friend, that is incentive all the more to entrust yourself to the one who is Zion's king. And beloved, I would leave you with this, that Zion's king is incarnate. He lives as God and man forever. And you remember how the apostle employs the incarnation for the comfort of believers with regard to Christ's priesthood. Because he is incarnate, he is a sympathetic high priest. Friend, all the more reason to throw yourself into his care is the reality that Zion's king is a sympathetic king. The one who rules providence is a sympathetic ruler. And may we throw ourselves before him 
and willingly under his scepter. Amen.